Welcome to this week's Behind the Scenes at Blenheim Palace. I've got the enormous pleasure of talking to the wonderful Sue Perkins about 300 years of Blenheim style in A Passion for Blenheim Fashion. When we spoke, Sue talked about her first-hand experience of wearing towering wigs and suffocating corsets, but I think even she wasn't quite prepared for some of the fashion accessories used by the Marlborough family and their friends over the centuries. This is a rather august day for me. I mean, people might know me for uh, watching people watching ovens in an open-sided tent in an 80 mile an hour crosswind and occasionally screaming the word bake into their faces. But today I get to go up in the world and uh, I get to discuss a passion for fashion and the history of costuming at Blenheim Palace with the wonderful Antonia Heaney. Hello, lovely. How are you? I'm very well, Sue. It's, it's uh, lovely to see you. How are you? Uh, I'm very, very good. Um, I have to say, um, I, I have experienced some of the things that you talk about um, in your <laughs> book directly because I was lucky enough to be involved in a social history show for the BBC called Supersizers, where I was sort of um, primped and preened and shoved into various sort of uh, costumes. Uh, essentially, what we did was we, we, we spent a week or 10 days in different periods of British history from uh, the medieval period through to the 1980s. So um, some of the things that you talk about, which we'll touch upon later, uh, I have direct experience of, and my organs have not yet recovered, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but the book charts the, um, the vagaries of fashion and how they basically impact uh, upon Blenheim, which is a wonderful place that I had the good fortune to visit a few years ago. <laughs> Uh, whilst doing AVT for Bake Off. But where, where would you like to start? Where, where's a good jumping off point for you? Well, I think um, given that it's Blenheim Palace, I think a very good place to start for us is always with um, the most famous um, Blenheimite of all, um, I, Winston Churchill. Um, Never heard of him. <laughs> Come on. Um, you would have, I'm sure, seen his bedroom the day you went to Blenheim and had a little yes. look at that cake. Yes. Um, so, as I say, I think that's a very, very good place to start. And um, I think as, as many, many people know, Winston Churchill was born at Blenheim Palace. Um, he wasn't meant to be born there, but he was. He was, he was very early. Um, and because he was early... Where was he supposed to be born, Antonio? Sorry to interrupt. Where was, he, where was he destined to be born? He was destined to be born in London, which is where his parents lived. But um, they were at Blenheim for a St Andrew's Day ball. And Jenny went into premature labour. Um, and again, that's, that's a whole different debate, in, in all honesty. Um, but anyway, he, he was born at Blenheim nonetheless. And the picture in the top right-hand corner of the screen is Churchill as a little boy, aged four. Um, and he, I think most people when they come to Blenheim think it's a little girl. And Yes, because the ringlets and uh, they're, they're sort of things that um, uh, rather erroneously we associate with, with little girls. But as you point out, those, the gender definitions of sort of long tresses and certain colours didn't apply in that period. No, no, they didn't at all. Um, and it was interesting. I, I, was, I was out walking with a friend the other day and she was telling me about a book she was reading um, called The Burning of, um, I think, um, Bernadette Cleary or, or something similar. And she was burnt to death in Ireland in the 19th century because her family thought she'd been taken by the fairies. And I, lots of people have asked me, well, why, why did Victorian boys, why were they dressed as little girls? And not only was it easy for toilet training, so they, it was far mm -hmm. easier to change linen underneath these wonderful smocks that they wore. Um, but also the Victorians were afraid that the child, the male children would be exchanged for malevolent, malevolent spirits or fairies. And that's where the expression away with the fairies comes from. You see, I was, I was thinking how, um, that's great. I was thinking, oh, that's how, how wonderful that there was this sort of single uniform that boys and girls had. But of course, it's, uh, social history being, being what it is, it was simply to protect the men uh, rather than Absolutely. in any way to create a sort of because balance were, between the sexes. They were very important, obviously. Well, um, they were the heirs, weren't they? And, and as you've subtitled there, pink for a boy, again, a very, very sort of important point here. Yeah, um, in the, I, know, I know things have changed, obviously, but it was always traditionally pink for a little girl. 
Um, but in fact, in the Victorian era, pink was considered to be a far stronger colour. And this little pink dress did belong to a little boy. Um, and it, as Churchill grew up, he developed his own style. Um, and I, I just love this photograph at the bottom of him with mm. Chanel. And she looks, <laughs> she looks very chic. And he looks a little bit like a country bumpkin. Not he looks like an bumpkin. exploded sofa, doesn't he? Bless him. I mean, he's, he, but, but I, that was one of the, the most striking things about the book, actually, is, is, you know, obviously you equate Churchill, our, you know, wartime premier yeah. with, um, you know, sort of global leaders and being, um, you know, cigar smoking and sort of mm-hmm. bellowing and being a great orator. But he was really good friends with Coco Chanel. There was, side, yep. there was a side to him where he obviously he was uh, very interested in and influenced by people from the arts. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, he, he, his, his interests were so wide and so varied. Um, but, you know, he clearly once he'd escaped his mother's clutches had no fashion sense whatsoever. And when... Um, I'm like that. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. Um, when he was married um, in 1908 to Clementine Hosier, there was a, a wonderful trade magazine called The Tailor and Cutter, and it describes him as looking like a glorified coachman. And it just goes on and says, you know, we hope our readers will not adopt this style. And that there he is with his creased sleeves and, and all the rest of it. Um, so what I, would a, a man of his standing be expected to have uh, worn for his wedding? I think something like that, but um, probably more fitted and, and probably, you know, tailored and not borrowed from a family member or, or you know, from his father or whatever. Um, it's just, you know, you just get the impression that this wasn't foremost, in, uppermost in his mind. And there's, I mean, there's a wonderful letter. Uh, there are many wonderful letters between Churchill and his mother. And in one of them, uh, they, were, they were quite strapped for cash. Uh, relatively speaking mm-hmm. and it's dated kind of early 1900s and it, it goes along the lines of something like you know um, I quite understand it when you want to spend 200 pounds on a ball gown and I want to spend 100 pounds on a polo pony um, you know huge amounts of money in those days but he went on to say you know the truth of it is we are both damnably poor now his mother was clearly into fashion in a big way Mm. actually a very very good polo player um so there you go and well, it's, it's, it's extraordinary to me that that a, a ball dress is twice as expensive as a as a sort of prestige you know pony for for sporting events yeah. i mean that's one hell of a ball gown isn't it it is indeed i mean it's extraordinary when you think about it absolutely well, extraordinary and i i it, it still interests me that this idea that, that, that the children were, that the male children were in pink because I, I grew up and it was very much blue for a boy and pink, pink yeah. for a girl. And for those who sort of moan and kvetch, now we're losing, you know, we're losing something. Uh, you know, all this all sort of new, uh, yeah, as gender identity obviously is, is at the forefront of discussions, quite rightly. Yeah. That's, you know, a great rebuttal to that traditional sense is actually... It's fabulous, you know. Churchill, you know, Churchill was 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 in pink. So stop it, stop stop deciding that little boys have to wear one thing and little girls have to wear another. It's just a social construct, and it's yeah, and it's yeah. subject to change and, um, and to to new imaginings. And I find that really heartening. Actually, it was a really interesting part of the book. Um, where are we going to next? We are going to um, go back in time. In actual fact, um, so. This is the, yeah, in fact, I should have just put in some incidental music there, I think, <laughs> yeah. don't you? So, Oniswaki Malipons, which is, um, uh, so you, you, people who think evil do evil. Am yeah. I translating that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. E- evil be to he who evil thinks. Um, and it's the motto of the Order of the Garter. And this is the fourth Duke of Marlborough who was Duke from 1758 until 1817 in his garter robes. Um, and the garter robes haven't changed to this very day. Mm. And when you see the procession in Windsor, they're all wearing these magnificent um, velvet cloaks and carrying um, a plu- ostrich-plumed hat 
etc. But it's the, the suit underneath that's the, the real star of the show. And on the left is a typical court coat. And the men in the 18th century were every bit as colourful as the women, if not more so. Yes. And, you know, the, the, the embroidery, the richness of the, um, the thread, you know, gold thread, silver thread, solid silver buttons. But the, the thing I love about this photograph is that the man that had this made was quite a canny man. And can you see it's got the yellow plain bits on the yes. Um And of course, he knew that you couldn't see those bits. And so, you know, why spend all that money on having, having fancy dancy bits when you don't need to see them? Um, very, so very clever. Very clever indeed. Um, and the other thing with uh, his name was George, one of our many George um, Dukes, is that he's wearing this amazing wig. And if we move on, the lady on the right is uh, one of the many Lady Diana Spencers um, that belong or that are cousins of the Marlborough family that live at Blenheim. Yes. So the, the, the Spencers of Althorpe are related um, by marriage. They um, are. Maintain a strong connection with one another. They do. They do. Um, so she, she was the sister of the fourth Duke and she married this... Um, the represented by uh, this paper sculpture, this chap called Topham Beauclair. And you can see that he has everything that a dandy about town would wear. For sure. <laughs> I mean, the first thing that strikes you, and this is very much a, a, a Beau Brummel kind of um, yeah. vibe, is that there has to be an effusive frill at the neck doesn't there there has to be this sort of explosion of material and the the more the merrier the bigger the the bigger the fop the bigger the um the frills i guess absolutely or, or furbelows or whatever you want to call them and um, it is a tight waistcoat as well a tight coat rather rather than a, a more flamboyant affair yeah very tight and, and again a lot of these dandies were corseted as well um, ah. So that would help, you know, squeeze them in. And we'll, we'll talk more about corsets if we may a little bit later. But Of course. It, it would help shape their athletic figure, um, certainly. Um, but what I love about this in particular is this the wig that he's wearing. And then mm. in, in his right hand, he's holding this little teeny tiny tricorn hat that can then just perch on top of it. I mean, that would look, I mean, I say faintly ridiculous. It would look enormously ridiculous because, I mean, I don't even know his arms are long enough to actually get to the top of that periwig <laughs> to, to put this ludicrous little donut thing on top. Um, but there's a lot of, the shoes are quite plain, aren't they there? They're kind of, because I suppose the, 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 the jazz hands, the main attraction is yeah. happening all around here and on the, what would you call these, these... Um, it's in this kind of a corsage and, you know, it would have helped keep off the smells and, and goodness knows what else. But So just to go back to the shoes, his shoes are very plain, but the way they decorated them would be to use buckles. And again, mm. the buckles could be metal, they could be paste, they could be diamonds, they could be, you know, whatever you wanted them to be. Um, Diamond so, buckles, my word. Absolutely. I mean... I mean for most people, of course, walking the streets of London would be a fairly torrid affair, bearing in mind the rope and sewers. But you'd have to be a—you'd have to have to know that you had a strong carriage that was going to get you from A to B, and that you were never going to set foot on a on a on a street, really. Well, presumably you would have you would have a nice strong footman to give you a piggyback through the street should anything happen to your carriage. Because I'm darn sure you wouldn't put your foot in there. But it's, it's all sort of conspicuous expenditure, isn't it? It's all it's very much that sort of aristocratic, let's get the bling on and with no shame, just disport ourselves around town. Absolutely. And in fact, um, the, the fourth Duke who we, we just saw had a very special servant called a, run, a running footman. And the running footman was employed to run in front of the carriage and announce that a very important man was on his way. Um, but again, very handy if the carriage fell into a rut and he could, you know, he, they were always very strong, very athletic. He'd be able to lift the carriage out and if need be, carry the Duke through the muck. So you, you write a lot about the, the, the livery and the cost of the livery involved in some of these, yeah. you know, the, the, the footmen and, and various sort of attendees of these grand houses. 
but the, the the running footman as you say was almost the 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 peacock so mm. announcing in all the splendor that somebody really important was on their way there's also a terrible story about a footman who ran uh was it from windsor to london yes yeah well the duke challenged him to a race and again it, it wasn't unheard of um you know this was quite a common sport to either have races between carriages and running footmen or between you know my i bet my running footman will go far faster than yours um, and the poor chap expired at the end of it, but he did beat the Duke. But, um, I think that's the definition of a Pyrrhic victory, isn't it, really? It's something like 96 miles, and he was doing, um, wasn't it 11 miles an hour or something, he said? And he was, something I mean, like that. I mean, yeah, absolutely insane. Um, so where are we going to next? Well, well we're, we're staying with um, wigs just for a little while because I think there's so much to be said about them. And yeah. so we, we saw Topham's wig. Now, um, some people had wigs and some people added to their hair. They had the, the equivalent of hair extensions as we would know them today. Yeah. But um, in Topham's case, you know, he would put on his wig and the next thing would be to put some grease on it and the grease was there so that powder could be applied. And you would go into a special powder room and you can see this gentleman, he's, he's sitting with something to cover his jacket and he's got this conical mask um, to his face while um, the hairdresser is using his swan down um, puff to sprinkle the powder. He looks um, like a womble in that. He looks like an aristocratic womble in that outfit so they'd have the, so that their as you say the clothes and their faces would be protected and it's bear grease they used that was the most popular i mean the, the again i think that was the um that was what the wealthy people used i'm sure that you know the the slightly lower orders would have just used any old grease that they could get their hands on a bit of lard or dripping or something a bit of lard or dripping absolutely um this powder, I'm assuming, like everything else of this period, would have been horrifically bad for your health. I'm imagining there are sort of dangerous particulates a go-go in this. The powder was, what was it made from? Um, it was made from, you know, it was a starchy material and it was, it was very fashionable. And you did have to pay a stamp when you bought it. So there was a stamp duty, there was a tax on it. Um, but again, you, I, I've read lots and lots of old newspapers of the time and there was a story that because some powder dealers were a little bit unscrupulous and they mm. would mix the proper powder with all sorts of things. And this poor gentleman leant a little bit too close to a naked flame and discovered all too late that his powder had been mixed with gunpowder. And did <laughs> literally just, you know, the poor man died of his injuries. It exploded. It really did. It did. I, mean, I think that, that, I that powder trader is beyond unscrupulous and has moved beyond. heavily into the sort of criminal zone, I think. Um, there was a lot of adulteration there, wasn't there, in terms of, you know, obviously just foodstuffs, but also, as you say, cosmetics. Mm -hmm. um, so you also talk about how the, the, the introduction of a, well, I suppose it was a luxury tax on yes. sort of, um, beauty products meant was sort of phased out in the end the wig because they became too expensive to powder and maintain yes yeah absolutely um, and a little bit like window tax and things like that they, they were also taxed for toothpaste and tooth powder and you know anything to do with personal hygiene really or, or fashion um, <laughs> so it's it was quite incredible really so how long do we know how long that process would take you know kind of you've got your hair extensions in they need to be set with grease and then powdered how long would you would a gentleman have to spend before in advance of a, of a do well i think a gentleman not so much because theirs was fairly straightforward but then if you look at the fourth duchess who's in the center of this picture now that's a whole different ball game that's a statement isn't it Yes, it is. It is indeed. But that's not a wig. Um, and unusually, it's not powdered either. But she had all sorts of hair extensions. And it would, you know, her hairdresser would create a frame and then add to it and titivate, etc. Um, and she actually employed, so her husband had the running footman, and she employed a French hairdresser. 
and I think this really sums it up beautifully. Um, she paid him double what she paid her footman, and he every day would have been employed in dressing her hair, which is quite extraordinary, really, when you think about it. I mean, it looks like it's a sort of topiary set up there. It's got like a little step ladder, and it's sort of. Um, and I don't know what the other guy, he's using some kind of surveying equipment there to sort of work out the angle of the weave. It's a sextant. And, um, you know, and of course it, it gave rise to all sorts of ridicule, which is, which is what this is. Um, but what, what we did, we had an exhibition a few years ago. And what we did, we had this wonderful thing created. Uh, let me just bring her into view, if I may. Oh, look at that. That's beautiful. Isn't that just wonderful? three galleons? That's what you need when you go out. Three you galleons do, on your head. You do not only three galleons, but a few ostrich feathers, pearls, etc. Um, but I, I just wanted, if I may, to do a little bit of show and tell with you, Sue, at this point. Yep. Um, and bearing in mind, I'm just going to show you this lady again. Okay. Yep. All right, and I want you to look also at her face and her makeup. Yes, okay. yeah. So what do you think this would have had to do with fashion of that time? It's a mouse. <laughs> well, I'm imagining that if you apply gr bear grease and then lots of starch, and then don't ever wash your hair. I'm imagining that you can basically, ha your hair would be alive. At least I've heard that the hair was alive with rodents. Is that true? Uh, it could be, or lice. And um, top you say that as if, it's a, as, if, as if that's the more sort of beneficial option. Well, or with, li with lice, I don't know if you can see these, you know, you've got these little oh. instruments and you can oh. just, you know, scratch your hair. And that's very nice, look, little hands carved on the ends of sticks. But that's... <laughs> Women had to wait till the 1940s before they were allowed to cut their hair, essentially. They had to, it, it, it took sort of the Second World War in order for, <laughs> and the land girl for them to go, oh, finally, I can have a manageable do. So they would have, they would have scratches, yes. and that was the lice, and the occasional yeah, rodent outbreak. Now, but the mouse was used for something else. So again, I'm just going to refer you to this face. Okay, so it's very, very white. Not the eyebrows. Could be the eyebrows. And the face is very white, so, oh, it'll be something awful. They'll basically powdered a mouse, won't they? Of course they will. <laughs> They'll basically okay. they blanched and powdered a mouse. I think they did use um, beetles occasionally. Um, but no, For rouge, wouldn't it? Yes, I suppose the... Um, it begins with a C, doesn't it? Cochineal, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, no, what, what would happen, remembering that smallpox was quite a big deal as well, um, they used to use a lead-based powder to make their complexion white. Now, this would help cause your hair to drop out, and your teeth. <laughs> it would help your hair to drop out. It would help yeah. you to drop out, absolutely. Um, so you could paint your eyebrows in. Sue, you're itching. <laughs> I am. I, I've come out in sort of, I don't know, sympathetic hives. The, the idea that the solution to smallpox scars would be lead is, is really very, very telling. So yes, they would, they would pop this on with all its kind of cavalcade of health negatives. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and do, do awful things. So you could either use the mouse's tail and shape it and stick it on, or you could just kind of cut him into shape. So they'd basically flay a mouse, which is what the Mozart opera obviously was based on. <laughs> and then um, they would they would stick a mouse pelt in the shape of a... What is it? Well, I suppose the good thing about that is you can have different eyebrows for different facial expression so you could spend a whole ball looking surprised or sort of quizzical or um sort of horrific and, and I, I know these these um heart-shaped sort of moles are called mouche aren't they which is french for fly it is very what was the and you, the, you say something brilliant in your book about that which is that it's almost like an early emoji absolutely 
so it's this visual signifier. So what would the, would, was the placement of the moose significant? Yeah, or the, shape? The, the shape, so they, they would be made of either leather or taffeta or silk or satin or something like this. Yeah. Um, and where you place them would indicate your mood, your political allegiance, etc., etc. Um, so they told all sorts of stories with them, really. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed these women lasted, a, you know, a, a year, you know. Uh, I mean, I know that the, the very heavy base, you know, makeup was worn by Elizabeth and her fate, you know, I mean, her teeth had fallen out and yeah. all sorts of terrible side effects. You'd think that by this period, people might have just cottoned on that, that the, the, the foundation was not what it was cracked up to be. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Extraordinary, isn't it? And, and I presume the smell, I mean, not to be too graphic or too base, but the, the, uh, thoroughly unpleasant. But I, I guess one acclimatised to it. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I suppose they did. And, and you know, they, they would have used all sorts of potions and things to, to try and mask that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Before we move on, can I just show you one more thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you suppose those are? Right. Well, I mean, they they, uh, they look like the shape of scissors, obviously, but the tongs or something. Or, is that so about right? It is absolutely right. And if we just go back to that um, that slide, so the chap who's doing the tweaking, can you see that he's actually got a pair of these tongs, and that's he would have heated them over a, a little spirit lamp. Um, and then teased the hair, which was either horse hair or human hair, into shape. Um, because they bequeathed hair, didn't they? You'd get, you know, grandma would die and then you'd get a sort of metre of her hair sort of passed down. Yeah. Or her wig. Or her wig with, with galleons. So yeah, I mean, the, an, an early hot tongue. I mean, you've got to commend their, you know, their, their sort of powers of inventiveness. They, That's yeah. extraordinary. They were extraordinary, absolutely. Imagine now seeing these women, one would, we, we would just, we would be so shocked. They would be so, uh, it's so overdone in this sort of, into a modern sensibility. But, um, that's amazing. Did you not have to wear a wig for one of your... Um, yes, um, as, uh, I was Marie Antoinette, so we did yeah. a French supersizers and... Um, I had a very similar to the one that you just showed actually I had a, a wig made which was not a meter high because in your book you say sometimes yeah. the wigs would be a meter high but I had one that was pretty I'd say probably 50 centimeters and the weight of it was punishing really? so by the end of a long day you would really 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 feel the weight of it you'd start to get a slight compression in your neck and um I remember doing a, a, a day where we just ate and drank, we, we'd eat and drink what, what was uh, de rigueur at the time. And I was absolutely hammered, I'm afraid to say. And I had to do a piece of camera about women who would often sleep upright with their hair in boxes. I don't know if this was particularly a French aristocratic thing, but sometimes when the um, coiffure was so intense, they, and they had another big do, Mm -hmm. They would just basically slump up against a wall and a courtier would basically enshrine their yeah. hairpiece in a, in, a, in a box. So we, we did that. Um, but it was so uncomfortable and the obviously it was pinned to me and, and the yeah. pins would pull. And I know that wouldn't necessarily be the case, but they, they had, as you say, frames. And those frames would have to embed somehow into their natural hair. And... Uh, you do look incredible. I mean, I had an 18-inch waist. I've never been happier. But it does come at, at, at a rather painful oh, cost, yes. I have to say. I mean, I know we're going to talk about um, uh, corsets in a bit. I have an awful lot to say on that. But, yeah, <laughs> I do have first-hand experience of, the, of, the, of those things. And they, they are, yeah, damn, it hurts to look that good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's, um, let's move on to corsets. So um, I, these are... The, portrait on the right is one that hangs in the palace and yes. it's of the current duke's grandmother and it was painted in the late 1920s and the portrait on the left is Winston Churchill's granny and it was painted in the mid 1800s and there's there's just over 80 years between the two of them 
and if it sorry between the two portraits i should say yeah. um and if you think we're now about 90 years on from when the portrait on the right was painted so the dress that duchess mary's wearing is something that you could wear today you know yes. it wouldn't stand out even 90 100 years on whereas yes. if mary were to dress in what churchill's granny's wearing she would just have looked ridiculous so things haven't changed as much in the past hundred years I would say there have been changes but not quite as much but the thing that interests me without being indelicate about the duchesses is what they were wearing underneath and this is typically what Duchess Mary would have worn so you've got French knickers on the right hand side so made of satin so very very beautiful against the skin very comfortable hand embroidered and interestingly I suppose they were made to be seen in a way yes uh, you know as opposed to the Victorian linen um, bloomers and all the rest of it which weren't quite as beautiful um, and on the left you've got a camisole and at the bottom a bust minimizer because again the fashions of the day were very straight up straight down very androgynous in, in yes. terms of shape and so that's what Duchess Mary would have worn underneath her, her dress. And a lot of the time, it's all about forcing, and again, particularly with women. I know that I said earlier that some of the 18th century men would have worn corsets, but it's particularly women that have to change their shape to fit yes. in. You know, and more often than not, especially at those times, it would have been a man designing how he thought the female shape should look. And with the dandies, you, you, there's a sense that it's by their own agency. There's no societal pressure on those men to put on a corset. It's simply where we feel tribally affiliated to this sort of um, aesthetic. And so we volunteer to put our bodies in this sort of restrictive cage. Whereas you say with women, it was just a societal norm and that's what they did. And from a very, very early age, they were trust and bound and... Yeah. You know, I, I, I often sort of think about foot binding and yes. uh, Ch Chinese traditional culture and the, 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 the outcry about that. But our, our own social history is full of yeah. uh, physical contortion done in the name of, of fashion and tradition. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it was entirely the men saying, actually, this century, we'd like our women to have this shape. Yeah. Um, and usually, well, for, 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 for a lot of, lot of it, a, a tiny waist and almost like that sort of, like you're sat atop an enormous toilet roll, you know, that kind of huge crinoline. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and when you, as you say, when you get to the, to the thirties, it's hellish, hellishly freer. Mm. Oh, there you go. So this Absolutely. is what we're talking about. Yeah. So on, on the left, well, this is the sort of thing that Duchess um, Fanny, uh, Duchess Frances would have been wearing in the Victorian times and the uh, the corset on the left gave a 19 and a half inch waist and you were saying that you had worn something similar to that yes and it, it took um two very very experienced I mean I was very lucky during the making of that show we worked with two costumers who were absolutely at the top of their game and worked on a lot of um uh, period costuming in fact I think one might have worked on Pride and Prejudice more of which later but <laughs> they knew their onions and you know I was in proper kit and it took both of them pulling with all their might wow. pulling and pulling and pulling to to configure my body and I I, I, mean, I was a lot lighter then than I am now I was certainly um, I, I was not carrying a lot of extra timber but even so it was painful and you feel <clears throat> your ribs starting to just slightly shift and certainly your organs displacing even just in 10 days um and when you take off the corset you have these welts across your body Eve, Eve, and the, again these were original corsets and they were padded and they had you know the, the whalebone had um you know linen around it to try and protect you but even so i mean it did feel like being in a clamp and you look, once you're in it, your posture's incredible. That's the only good thing I can say about it. I naturally am a real sloucher. But once, once you have that support in your core, you feel like you own the world because you just glide in and out of places and you're completely 
<laughs> right. But boy, did it hurt. And and looking at that, it's 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 awful, isn't it? I mean, it's it's, it's like a sort of fanciful Iron Maiden, really. Did did you eat while you were wearing it? Oh, a, a huge quantities. I mean, when I was married, I mean, in terms of comfort, how how was that? Uh, awful. So when 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 um, we did the French version, so we did the French Revolution. When I was Marie Antoinette, I didn't eat very much because, despite the fact she's credited with, you know, let them eat cake, she didn't say that, and her own appetite was scant. Um, and she was so sort of traumatised and sad most of her life. She she probably had what we'd now deem an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. But when I was back in the UK and we did the Victorian episode. I was eating an awful lot. There'd be banquets, 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 and you're putting away three, four, five thousand calories a day. And yeah. it has to go somewhere. So sort of in the end, I'd end up with this sort of uniboob where sort of essentially my sort of st- stomach, which was inflating, sort of rose. So this this unsettling kind of sort of <laughs> jellified layer kind of popping up above. But it was yeah, it was and I had weird aches and pains for for months afterwards, wow. which I don't really know what I attribute those to, but it it was it, it was not a pleasant sensation, and you almost lose track of whether you're full or not because your stomach's not in the right place. Mm. It's everything's defying gravity and sort of pinned in. So I presume over time, I mean that's serious damage you're doing in one of those. Well, have a look at that. Oh. So that's the wasp waste, which again was desirable at, at a certain stage. It's just, and there are there are really early kind of X-rays, I think, of women with these organs that, as you say, are completely displaced. If you think you wore yours for a relatively short time, <laughs> imagine wearing that for years and years and years. And they started them young, and actually they would deform the body. Um, so that you know that, that when that corset came off the body wouldn't go back to that it it would still have that it wouldn't quite be as restricted as that but it had been trained to it into that sort of oh i mean that's just awful isn't it that that is it's there's nothing good to say about that really um because you know one should never have to sacrifice one's health and longevity for a sort of fashionable whim but that's exactly what that is isn't it what's the cartoon on the bottom right what is what's god look at their waist there it always gave rise to to cartoonists and things like we saw with the wig and this is just um you know meant to be a comical view of of the extremes that people would go to to lace themselves into these really really tight corsets Um, but you think of again it's it's whimsical it's all it's 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 that victorian sort of aesthetic whereas before in the sort of the Hanover the sort of the empire line and I mean I, I'm, I'm certainly not a social historian so forgive me if I'm, I'm getting it wrong but a, a much looser affair much you know much freer I mean I think there was an element of corsetry there but it certainly wasn't nothing, nothing in comparison and also before these kind of extreme more Victorian corsets ladies would wear stays now um, I just want to again just do a a quick um, kind of show and tell. Have you come across one of these before? What is that? <laughs> it's and no, it's going to be something awful. Like, no, I don't know. No, it's not. I promise. I'll oh, stop. No, oh, is it, is it really, if, a steak where they just hammered in the corset? <laughs> there. Uh, yeah, so if they wouldn't the, put their corsets on, they just used to bash them. Yeah. No. Um, so before in the 18th century, they would wear stays, which were kinder. And they, um, although they looked narrow, they kind of just smoothed you around a little bit, as it were. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned how good, how good your posture was when you were wearing your corset. Well, with the stays, they used to pop this down the front. It's called a stay bus. And so um, there'd be a special pocket at the front of it and you'd just pop it down there and it would keep you nice and upright. And... Um, it, because it was worn close to the heart, again, I don't know if you can make it out, it was carved with all sorts of love tokens and things. And so it would be given by a man to his wife or mistress or whatever as a token, as a love token. 
and um, I think says I love you like a, a sort of <laughs> a, a wooden stake, a posture stake. But I, I, yeah, I mean, within within the context of it being sort of probably quite painful, that is, it, I love that about history when you see these engraved, personalised little artifacts. Um, yes. Yeah, she was she was loved, and boy was she upright. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one of one of the duchesses, um, the ninth duchess, who was an American lady called Consuelo Vanderbilt, um, she would she was corseted. And you mentioned starting them off very young. Um, mm. Her memoir she writes about when she was a child. Her mother used to sit her with an, a metal rod down her back and leather straps to keep her upright, which in a way it's more like a medieval even more like a medieval form of torture so it's just astonishing really i should, I should imagine she just longed for the day that social services was invented because that <laughs> is just extraordinary isn't it that that's yeah. yeah i mean for goodness sake don't educate your women but but do teach them to sit upright by you know <laughs> basically chaining them to a to a stick yeah. um so those are the some more examples there of those, those beautiful yes. stakes yeah. we'll, we'll we'll move on um i might treat myself and put a light on am i disappearing into the gloom should i put a light on yeah or am right. i all right all right i think you're okay but yeah i'll go and do that okay right gosh that's much better good <laughs> i got i was i was carried away so i sort of yeah um, this, this is just in the on the right hand side there you can see hoops which were the precursors of crinolines um, and a hoop would have been worn under a dress called a mantua and again just to show you the the beautiful fabric mm. wealth etc etc so um, that's just a, a little a little clip on that but oh here we go <laughs> I just can't help it I'm so sorry no no so, I, uh I sense we'll be discussing this at length. <laughs> no, 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 we won't. It, it's just a, a little. So when we had this exhibition, everything um, in it was a period piece, except for these breeches. And I needed a pair of breeches just to kind of illustrate what men would wear. And this is what men would wear next to their skin. So it's the equivalent of someone standing there in their boxer shorts and their vest. And the breeches belonged to Mr. Darcy, to Colin Firth. And they were the joy of my life for three months. Um, but you would just look upon them and just... I just stroke them gently every day. Yeah. I do. Why not? But that is, it, that's why it's such a great moment. And it was so well done in that particular iteration because it's very intimate for a, for a gentleman to be seen. I mean, that shirt should always be covered. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it was not so socially acceptable. Neck. Yes, yeah. you're allowed to see the neck. So you've, you have fulsomely touched um, Colin Firth's britches. I have. I, have. I, I, I love the fact that you felt... <laughs> I love that you chased that down for the exhibition. I think there may have been alternative motives, but it's good that they, they were there and you get to... And it's quite a thing, actually, for you to have had those. They were, they were quite the talking points of... Uh, probably one of the most... Uh, talked about moments in television of that decade, I imagine. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, we move, we'll move on. Um, <laughs> so we've kind of talked about corsets and the terrible damage that they did. Um, and there were so many things that were very, very dangerous uh, for, for people who followed fashion. Um, the arsenic bolts at the top left there, Paris green was a very popular colour during Victorian times and Paris green was produced by the addition of arsenic to the dye. Um, wonderful. So as you wore it, your skin would absorb the arsenic on the, on the fabric. And of course, the poor souls that were employed in factories dusting, you know, kind of little artificial flowers with green powder containing arsenic they they suffered beyond belief of course there was no sort of there was no unions there there was no sort of represent work place representation or tribunals so these poor girls would just sort of fall sick and in, in one case i know you mentioned die and um plausible deniability they just they they could just say oh well, it wasn't a, 
It wasn't yeah. the dye. It wasn't the. Um, so the, the, for people that that had a Paris green dress, the symptoms would be they'd just they'd, they'd while the dress was on, they'd presumably have local irritation and yeah, yeah sores and, and sores and things like this. And and again, that was the thing. If you were removed from the source of irritation, it was fine. Um, so you know, factory owners just just let it carry on pretty much and and the, and it was again women for the most part they would just tie their aprons up to cover their nose a bit like we do now we go into shops and things you know they covered their, yeah. their nose and mouth and that was that was all they could do but it was you know it was dire absolutely mm. so what's johnny depp doing there in his finery well johnny depp played the mad hatter and um, beaver skin was used. You see, you say about mouse skin, when you think about it, there, are, there were so many skins that they used in fashion and, and still do. Mm. So beaver skin hats were very fashionable and you needed to um, separate the fur from the, the skin. And it was done with a process called carroting, an orange um, paste that contained mercury. And the mercury would give off vapour and it would you know affect your sanity sooner or later hence the mad hatter so they think that that's what the the, the mad hatter had mercury poisoning yes yeah and did die of mercury poisoning and that was the felt it was felt wasn't it, it was uh, the so a felt hat was originally made from from beaver yeah skin. yeah yeah um as at the bottom i mean <laughs> that's one hell of a statement piece um, but there's 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 a lot of danger in having a skirt that's as wide as that yes i mean it, again it's it's exaggerated but if if you look back through past copies of the times again in the 19th century there was a continual liturgy of disasters involving crinolines so you had open fires you had open flames for for light so if your wig didn't catch fire, then the chances are that your crinoline would. And the, the way the crinolines were made, they're, they're actually, they act like bellows. So their wire was fabric around them. So they would compress and they, and would, yeah, they would literally, literally fan the flames. Um, they'd get caught under carriages. Um, they'd get caught in machinery in factories. But there is there is one story. There's nothing to commend them, Antonio. No, absolutely. I mean, nothing. Absolutely. I suppose the only thing is you could wear your pajamas underneath, and no one would know. But you know, absolutely nothing at all. Um, I remember there was there was one gentleman wrote to the Times, and he was thoroughly incensed because um, he had a pew at the church, and there wasn't room for him to sit in it when crinolined ladies also sat in the pew because they just took up so much room. He was completely beside himself. It's not their fault. I mean, <laughs> I, I have to say the one the one thing I would say that I remember learning about crinolines, which which did commend them to me, was. At certain gardens um, were developed so that you'd have lavender, but quite woody, thick, very aromatic lavender bushes placed just uh, shy of the full width of a crinoline, so that when ladies walked um, through, the, uh, the their rough sort of skirts would brush up against and then release this vapour which I thought was very romantic and lovely but not romantic and lovely enough to sort of offset no. the huge amount of pain and no. agony they went through in, in, in wearing them um, but the, yes they are you're right they, they are like sort of bellows you know because yeah. you, in trying to get away you just introduce more oxygen which would then compress and Absolutely. Yeah. I mean literally they, you could you could be completely aflame in about two minutes Especially if someone had put gunpowder in your in your, your wig. wig, you were doomed. Um, there, there is a happy note. That, or there was one happy story. Thank what goodness for that. So Martha Shepherd, a young lady, decided she was going to end it all by flinging herself off the bridge into a river, and she was wearing a crinoline, and it acted like a parachute, so that a passerby was able to fish her out of the river and take her to safety. So that was rather nice. Uh, that is good. What I'm, that I'm going to hold on to as our one positive crinoline story. 
<laughs> right, I, yeah. I think we should. Um, I, I'm just very conscious of the time. So if I may, I'm just going to quickly run through this because I'd, I'd really, really would like to talk about Dior. Yes, of course. And, and this, this is in 1896, so the time of the Ninth Duke and uh, the American lady I mentioned, Consuelo Vanderbilt. Yes. And they would have house parties. And again, the women... Um, it, it was easy for men in terms of clothing. They would be out shooting and, and wear you know, their uniform, as it were. Women had to have at least four changes of clothing every day with the appropriate underwear and accessories and things. And for a four-day stay, then that's 16 outfits, and you weren't expected to repeat an outfit at all. Well. You know, it's it's just um, ludicrous, bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, it is bonkers. Exactly that. Yeah, um, but again, just moving on, we had great fun with shoes in uh, the exhibition, and the pair in the top right-hand corner there go right back to the mid, uh, yeah, early seventeen hundreds, in actual fact, and they were made of, of satin. Um, and shoes at the time weren't made for a left or a right foot. And the shoe you can see at the bottom has gauche written in it, so left. So as you wore them, you would put a little sticker or write in them or indicate which foot you generally put them on, which was rather nice. Um, and that centrepiece, the shoe there in the cabinets, is... Um, in your book, there's a, there's a, there's a bigger photo, uh, um, zoomed in photo. It's the most stunning shoe I've ever seen. It's, and that was called the Marie Antoinette. Yeah, and for people that, well, they can refer to the book, but the clasp is an embroidered head, isn't it, of, of Antoinette. Yeah. So she's sort of slightly looking down and the, the main element of the clasp is this huge wig and it's so beautiful. It is. And it's when she... She actually had, um, you know, a couple of ships in full sail on that buckle as well, which was rather nice. Absolutely. And the, and the fact that there's then a portrait of Louis XIV just above her, and with his very fancy dancy shoes as well, it seemed a good place to put her. He's very pleased with his calves, isn't he? He's getting those on display. Oh, yes. Delighted <laughs> himself. Right. Well, so that was... Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. So that that was specially sent to you, wasn't it? That that shoe. Yes, it was. So um, because of, of the Louis the Fourteenth connection and the fact that he liked to wear red heels, and he actually decreed that it was only nobility in France that were allowed to wear red heels. Um, it made me think of, of Christian Louboutin with his red soles, which are a trademark. And so I, I eventually managed to find the right person to speak to. And I said, is there any chance we could have a pair of shoes? And they were absolutely fantastic. And they said, yes, yes, of course you can. And they said, well, would you like us to send you a catalogue? And I said, oh, yes, that would be nice. And I'm expecting a little teeny tiny catalogue. A PDF then, or something, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And this great big leather-bound book arrived. And, um, we just sat and flipped through. And really, they're works of art. They're not just shoes. Yes. And came to the Marie Antoinette, and I thought, well, it has to be this. Um, and they, they were great. And they said, well, send you a pair from Paris, you know, from, from our headquarters, from our archive. And then they, they emailed and they said, we're terribly sorry um, the, the shoes are broken, we can't send them. And I said, oh, okay. But we have got, we have got some in the UK, we'll send you those, absolutely fine. And then I had another email saying, we've lost one of the shoes <laughs> and it just carried on and on. So in the end, we ended up with one shoe and it was perfect. I, I have to say, I think it's a single item, it's just, yeah, it's, it's giddying, it's lovely. It is, it is indeed, yeah. So, um, we met the Lady Diana in the middle before. Yes. Um, so she was a Lady Diana Spencer. The lady on the left. Now, can you see, if you see her shape, she's wearing stays. Um, and as I say, it, it still looks very severe. But it, it, if you see her sideways on, she actually would have looked quite normal. 
Yeah. So that was fine. But I wanted also to, to just acknowledge the relationship with Lady Diana Spencer that we're all more familiar with. Um, and the year we had the exhibition was actually 20 years um, since she died. And so I managed to get in touch with this lovely lady called Christina Stambolian. Yes. Um, and she very famously designed what became known as the revenge dress. And we had it in the exhibition. Christina um, loaned us a couple of her sketches. Um, and she was, I mean, we're still in touch. She's such a lovely lady. And she said that Princess Diana came into her boutique in Kensington with her brother. And she was just looking for, you know, a cocktail dress. Mm. And she bought or ordered this dress, commissioned this dress. And then Christina didn't see it you know because do you remember at the time everyone would photograph diana and whatever Wherever. She was wearing. Yes. Um, and then it was the night that prince charles acknowledged that there were three people in the marriage and it was the night of diana's first solo engagement at the serpentine gallery and this is what she wore and that's what made the headlines what, a, what an extraordinary way to announce Christina on the world stage as well. And that, because it was oh, um, probably the most photographed dress of that time, but maybe Liz Hurley's might, might have might be <laughs> creeping up the Versace safety pin dress. But that, Absolutely. yeah, I, I love the idea of a revenge dress, that the idea that you're slighted or sad and you go out and you just dazzle. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's the way forward. <laughs> I might go for a revenge jogger. I'm slightly uh, revenge onesie. I think it's more. Revenge, you see a onesie, Winston Churchill's invention. Back to the beginning. Yes, I read. We, I, I was just thinking. I was sad we hadn't mentioned that, and now we have. It's good. Yes, absolutely. So Coco Chanel, no influence at all as far as fashion goes. Just went ahead and invented his onesie. Nothing wrong with a utilitarian one piece. That's all I'm saying. So we 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 come to almost the crowning glory of of we have. We of the thing which is which is the something i didn't know about to my shame which is the very strong connection that blenheim has to yes. christian the house of deal essentially we do indeed and this this is a, a relatively recent photograph so in 2016 um deal launched their um cruise collection for spring summer 2017 and the palace was closed for two days and you can see that the chairs are all beautifully laid out and we have this this amazing catwalk in the long library and awesome. it was it was a day when it was pouring with rain as it always is on these occasions but it was a day when every celebrity um of the fashion world etc was invited and they actually chartered a, the orient express to go from victoria station to our local station and brought all these celebrities and then there were limousines to bring them to the palace and they took their seats and these very stern-faced models paraded their dresses and the whole thing guess how long it took oh 10 minutes 12 12 <laughs> minutes and it That's was it was staggering absolutely staggering that's extraordinary. Blink and you miss it. But then, as you say, like different with Dior because those pieces form part of, a, of an archive. But, but with yes. so many fashion shows, it is blink and miss it. So, yeah. 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 What a location. What uh, a location. But uh, we, have, we have history um, with Dior. Um, so they didn't choose to come to Blenheim randomly. In fact, mm. what they did um, was to, to hark back to the 1950s. And do you remember Duchess Mary that we saw in that black yes, dress? Yes. So that's Duchess Mary. She was a huge supporter of the Red Cross and she raised money for them throughout her life. And she was president of the local branch of the Red Cross. And you can see her here with Princess Margaret, who was guest of honour at the fashion show that she organised in 1954. And she's wearing, I think, the the last beavers in uh, in britain the ones that hadn't been carroted absolutely <laughs> um, then she had it made into a hat no, she doesn't <laughs> so um 1954 christian dior came and he 
showed haute couture dresses and gowns and things. Um, and it took well over an hour to parade and show all these wonderful things. Um, it was so successful, it raised about a quarter of, or the equivalent of a quarter of a million pounds. And you would have paid five guineas to attend. And you could attend, you know, it wasn't by invitation only. Oh, that's good. It's very good. It's very, I mean, five guineas was quite a lot of money in 19. Of course. But the fact that it at least sort of notionally was open to all and that it yes. had a charitable arc it, was it, great. It, and that is his protégé on the right, isn't it? That's Yves Saint Laurent. It is. So um, it was so successful in 1954 that they repeated the exercise in 1958. And Dior had died the previous year. So you're quite right. That's Yves Saint Laurent. Princess Margaret is the guest of honour again. Um, and Duchess Mary's just leaning over her shoulder <laughs> to, to give her some instruction, I dare Is say. photobombing? <laughs> Quite possibly. But um, what I'd like to do, if I may, is to just show you, a, a, it's about two minutes um, film of that 1958 show. And I think some of the things to look out for are the fact that models are smiling, because in the um, mm. 2016, they were, I mean, they just had such stern, strict faces, as I'm sure they were told to do. The models are all smiling. And if you look at the audience, all the ladies are wearing hats, except for the family members. So the Duchess isn't wearing a hat and her daughters aren't wearing hats. So all the ladies, I should say, and her daughters aren't wearing hats because they're at home. Um, but there was a, a wonderful report in the local paper and it said that because people had bought tickets to come to this, then the Duke and Duchess weren't at home to them. So, you know, there was no kind of going up and saying, hi, Bert, how are you? And, and yeah. But, but one last thing before I do show you the film. The other thing was that for a pound, you could buy a raffle ticket. And the winner of the raffle ticket won a Christian Dior dress. which would be worth an unimaginable amount of money now. Unimaginable. And it, it was won by a tenant farmer, apparently. <laughs> that's great. That's the happy ending everyone wants. Absolutely. Oh, man, that's great. So this is some archival footage of, this is the third show, uh, the second show, sorry, with Yves Saint Laurent, is it? Or is it a compilation? No, it's, it's just a quick snippet um, with commentary. Um, so, ready? Let's go. I Come on, let's hear that old commentary. <laughs> let's hear that old commentary. At Blenheim Palace, a royal occasion, Princess Margaret received a bouquet from eight-year-old Hilary Coates, and the fabulous presentation of the Dior Winter Collection began. It raised money for the Red Cross, and the princess was the guest of the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough. 1,650 people paid five guineas each to benefit the charity and see what the great fashion house of Paris plans for the smart woman this winter. What a setting for a fashion display. A short evening gown with chic and style such as only the house of Dior, according to the house of Dior, can give. Another evening gown, this one for the great occasion. The 16 Manica, two English girls among them, modelled 136 creations all told. Quite an evening's work. Another short evening ensemble. If one gown could be singled out from so many, perhaps it was the happily named Blenheim, a superb long evening dress. himself is dead, but in the world of haute couture, it's the king is dead, long live the king. Now the great man's mantle is worn by Yves Saint Laurent. Her Royal Highness congratulated him on the magnificent display. Then he presented the models to the princess at the end of a most memorable evening. Fabulous. Wasn't that magnificent? 
absolutely fabulous that and it all made all the more special by the fact that you know people could if they had them you know if they could raise the five guineas they could come and see it and it so polite as well and then this sort of high level sort of paparazzi it was all just rather oh, I like that. It's really lovely really really lovely i don't know if you noticed there was a lady in the audience smoking as well um, <laughs> i nothing from social history <laughs> I know, I know. I learned nothing um i really enjoyed that thank you so much for sharing everything not only from the book but also the show and tell and i will have some of those life scratches if you could just lovely lovely wouldn't mind would, sending you, them. would you like me to send you a mouse i have some here actually which uh, i must sort out <laughs> but yes yeah, should my eyebrows need sort of um <laughs> yeah, i don't know some, some some more expressions then yeah i'll, I'll make sure that's the way i go um <laughs> Thank you for sharing with all of us your knowledge and expertise. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Sue. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Well, that was a bit of an eye-opener. She's marvellous, isn't she? Do feel free to share this recording and subscribe to this podcast if you'd like to receive a reminder when the next episode becomes available. Next week, at the same time, I'm going to be talking to author and historian Hugo Vickers about Cecil Beaton and his connection to Blenheim Palace. Hugo was commissioned by Cecil Beaton to write his biography, and he was given full access to all Beaton's papers and diaries. Just as well that this was settled early on, as Beaton died shortly after their second meeting. I do hope you'll join me. <laughs>